I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by my boss and SCOTUS 101 fact-checker, John Malcolm. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Great to be with you, Elizabeth. Before we get into what's been going on at the court, I wanted to mention that we are still selling SCOTUS 101 mugs. So show your love for the podcast and get a limited edition mug while they last. You can get them at shop.heritage.org. And listeners, we are still offering a 30% off discount code and free shipping. You'll want to enter four bananas. That's all one word, the number four and bananas, all lowercase, at checkout to get your discount. All right, now on to the show. The court is officially on its summer recess, but before hitting the road for their summer vacations, the justices released decisions in a number of highly anticipated cases this week, including cases involving agency deference, adding a citizenship question to the census, and partisan gerrymandering. First, though, I want to mention that this week, Justices Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor both celebrated their birthdays, so here's wishing them a very happy belated birthday. All right, let's dig into what happened at the court this week. First up is Murphy versus Carpenter. The court did not issue an opinion in this case and instead asked for re-argument next term. This is the case where a member of the Creek Nation challenged his conviction in Oklahoma State Court for mutilating and murdering his romantic rival. Carpenter argued the state lacked jurisdiction to prosecute him because the crime took place within the boundaries of what he says is an Indian reservation. The state of Oklahoma does not agree. If the Supreme Court buys Mr. Carpenter's argument, it would transform 19 million acres of eastern Oklahoma into Indian country. Justice Gorsuch was recused from the case, so it seems the remaining eight justices could not come to a ruling, even after asking for additional briefing following the oral argument last December. The case will be re-argued sometime when the justices return in October. So the first merits decision we'll discuss is the partisan gerrymandering case, Ruscio versus Common Cause and Benesek versus Limon. So this was a 5-4 decision written by Chief Justice Roberts, joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, holding that partisan gerrymandering is a political question beyond the reach of the federal courts. So plaintiffs in Maryland and North Carolina challenged congressional redistricting, claiming it discriminated against Republicans in Maryland and Democrats in North Carolina. They argued that such partisan redistricting violated a variety of constitutional provisions, including part of the First Amendment and 14th Amendment. District courts ruled in both cases in in favor of the challengers. The Supreme Court reversed, concluding that this is a non-justiciable political question lacking discoverable and manageable standards. So 15 years ago, the court was asked to recognize such partisan gerrymandering claims as justiciable. And in the intervening years, courts have been unable to come up with a manageable standard. In essence, the court has been asked to decide how much politics is too much when it comes to congressional redistricting and when does it become a constitutional violation. A majority of the Supreme Court recognized that the political branches are better suited to this task. And indeed, the Constitution assigns the task of drawing district lines to state legislatures with the supervision of Congress, which, of course, are both bodies directly accountable to the people instead of insulated and unaccountable federal judges. Justice Kagan dissented. She wrote a very impassioned dissent, joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor, arguing that the court was refusing to remedy a constitutional violation because it thinks the task is beyond its capabilities, but that the majority is just flat wrong. To be sure, partisan gerrymandering is pretty unpopular, uh, and states can certainly look for ways to limit it, but it's one of those situations where just because you don't like something doesn't make it unconstitutional. 
So moving on to another majority opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, it seems this week the chief giveth and the chief taketh away. So, John, can you talk about the census case? Yeah, well, this was one of the big ones of the term, and the case involved whether the Commerce Department could add a citizenship question to the census. It's worth noting that between 1820 and 2000, with the exception of 1840, there has been a citizenship question on some form of the census every 10 years. So between 1820 and 1950, a citizenship question was on the census. It's asked of every household. Between 1960 and 2000, it was asked in a sample census that sent to about a quarter of the households in the country. And in 2010, the citizenship question was, was moved to what's referred to as the American Community Survey that sent to about 3 percent of households. Uh, Other countries, by the way, the UK, Spain, Mexico, France, they all ask citizenship questions on their uh, census forms. So the Constitution in the enumerations clause calls for an actual enumeration of the population uh, every 10 years in such a manner uh, as Congress shall by law direct. Uh, There's a statute that Congress passed delegating the authority to conduct the census to the Commerce Department. And the Commerce Secretary, who is now Wilbur Ross, is aided by the Census Bureau, which is a statistical agency within the Commerce Department. After considering various options, uh, Secretary Ross decided to add the citizenship question back to the census rather than using sampling or some of the other methods that had been uh, given to him as options. Uh, This was challenged by several groups who claimed that this would result in an undercount because many people, most likely illegal aliens, uh, would decline to fill out the census. It's very important to get an accurate census count because it can determine, for instance, how many congressmen a state uh, can have. And there are lots of federal programs that are available uh, only to uh, citizens. Another reason to get an accurate count is that it helps the Department of Justice to enforce the Voting Rights Act, which provides them information that they need in order to accurately assess whether or not lines are being drawn for so-called majority-minority districts. So the Chief Justice wrote the majority opinion uh, in this case, but it was highly fractured to say the least. (laughs) Uh, So the Chief and the four conservatives ruled that it would not violate the enumerations clause to include a question about citizenship uh, on the on the census. All of the justices, except for Justices Alito and Gorsuch, agreed uh, that the secretary's decision to add the citizenship question back was reviewable by a court uh, under the Administrative Procedures Act. Roberts and the four conservatives concluded that Secretary Ross did not act arbitrarily and capriciously when he opted to add the citizenship question back to the census rather than choosing one of the other options that had been given to him. But, and this is a very big but, (laughs) the chief, joined by the four liberal justices, concluded that the reason that Secretary Ross gave for adding the question back, specifically to help DOJ enforce the Voting Rights Act, was a pretext and not the real reason for doing so. The case was remanded back uh, to the lower court so that the Commerce Department could come up with a more fulsome uh, explanation as to why uh, they want to add the citizenship question back to the census. Uh, We'll see whether they're going to have enough time or not. Justice Breyer wrote a partial dissent that was joined by uh, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg, saying that they believed that Ross's choice to add the citizenship question back onto the census was arbitrary uh, and capricious rather than choosing one of the other options. 
Justice Thomas wrote a partial dissent joined by Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch saying that once it had been determined that it did not violate the enumerations clause to add the, the citizenship question back, that should have been the end of the matter and that the explanation offered by Secretary Ross was certainly not arbitrary and capricious. And Justice Alito wrote a separate uh, partial dissent saying that once Congress delegated this authority to conduct the census as he deemed appropriate to the Commerce Secretary – that should have been it, and the matter should not have been uh, reviewable by a court of law at all. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I think that I read earlier uh, when the, the case was being argued before the justices that the deadline for printing the forms was the end of June. And then I read not too long ago that the Bureau had prepared a form with the question and one without. Uh, so I'm not sure that they'll be able to, to meet that deadline uh, and the litigation will continue, you know, by next week. Yeah, so we'll see. So this was uh, the opinions were that had been issued before it reached the Supreme Court were by two district courts. The administration went to the Supreme Court and said, "We really need you to review this now because if we don't have a decision by June 30th, we're going to run out of time." The president yesterday was saying, "Well, maybe we need to delay uh, the census in order to have this all play out before the lower courts." It's a big game of chicken that's going on, and I have no idea whether the Commerce uh, Department is going to have time to get this done. All right, moving on to a another highly anticipated decision, at, at least uh, in in uh, in the legal world, Kaiser versus Wilkie. Uh, this was a case challenging judicial deference to administrative agencies' interpretation of their own ambiguous regulations. So all nine justices agreed that the lower court here was wrong to reflexively defer to an agency in this case, uh, a majority was unwilling to retire a doctrine called Seminole Rock Hour Deference. This deference doctrine instructs judges to defer to an administrative agency's interpretation of its own ambiguous regulations as long as that interpretation is not plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulation. Many judges and legal scholars have called for the court to jettison this doctrine because it turns on its head Chief Justice John Marshall's declaration in Marbury versus Madison that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Seminole Rock and our deference instead ensure that federal bureaucrats rather than judges say what the law is. So the case involves a dispute over the interpretation of a Department of Veterans Affairs regulation dealing with disability benefits. Uh, the veteran lost at the appeals court because the judges said that both he and the, the VA had reasonable interpretations of the applicable regulation uh, so that the judge's hands were tied and they must defer to the agency. Writing for the majority of the Supreme Court, Justice Elena Kagan took this plainly erroneous and inconsistent standard from Seminole Rock and Hour and turned it into a multi-step test. The first part of the test is, is that judges must use all the traditional tools of construction to determine if the applicable regulation is, in fact, genuinely ambiguous. If it is genuinely ambiguous, then the judge must consider whether the agency's interpretation is a reasonable one. If the agency's interpretation is reasonable, then the judge must next conduct an independent inquiry into whether the character and context of the agency interpretation entitles it to controlling weight. Uh, Kagan wrote that this inquiry may include, but is not limited to, factors such as whether the interpretation is the official position of the agency, involves the agency's substantive expertise, and reflects the fair and considered judgment of the agency rather than being a convenient litigation position or some sort of post hoc rationalization. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the concurrence in a few minutes, but I just want to point out that Justice Gorsuch's concurrence makes a little bit of fun of, of this new standard, particularly 
these markers that Justice Kagan laid out, and I want to read what Gorsuch wrote. He said, the majority candidly admits that it finds it impossible to reduce this new inquiry to any exhaustive test, so it settles for laying out some markers. We are told that courts should often, but not always, withhold deference from an interpretation offered by a mid-level agency staff. Uh, often, but not always, withhold deference from non-technical, prosaic-seeming interpretation. Often, but not always, withhold deference from an interpretation advanced for the first time in an amicus brief. And often, but not always, withhold deference from an interpretation that conflicts with an earlier one. The only certainty in all this is that the majority isn't really much moved by stare decisis. Everyone recognizes, to one degree or another, that our cannot stand. Uh, so stare decisis is, of course, the primary reason that five members of the court refused to overturn Seminole Rock and Hour. As I pointed out uh, from Kagan's dissent last week in the Nick property rights case, she's become the main stare decisis cheerleader at the Supreme Court. Uh, in, in Kaiser, she says it is good and important for our opinions to be right and well-reasoned, but that is not the test for overturning precedent. Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, Alito, and, and Kavanaugh concurred in, in the judgment. They, they all agreed that the, uh, the lower court was wrong to defer to the agency, uh, but they were ready to do away with Seminole Rock and our deference. Gorsuch wrote, It should have been easy for the court to say goodbye to that decision and says the majority is imposing, quote, so many new and nebulous qualifications and limitations that the doctrine emerges maimed and enfeebled, in truth zombified. And this new test will cause more uncertainty and much litigation. It does appear to me a, a slightly higher hurdle for agencies to clear than the old plainly erroneous and inconsistent standard. Uh, so we'll see what lower court judges do with it and whether it will affect agencies' win rate, which is 74 percent when our and Seminole Rock deference is invoked. Justice uh, Justice Kavanaugh also had a concurrence, and I just want to highlight one zinger that he got in, which is umpires in games at Wrigley Field do not defer to the Cubs manager's in-game interpretation of Wrigley's ground rules. So too here. So it was a little disappointing for uh, conservatives who, who hoped that the court would just go ahead and get rid of uh, or retire that old doctrine. Uh, but we'll see if uh, Justice Kagan's new hour seminal rock with teeth will be able to check federal bureaucrats at all. So, John, do you want to talk about uh, the Wisconsin versus Mitchell case? Yeah, but before I do, with respect to that Kaiser opinion, so it looks, as, again, as if the chief justice uh, wrote in and saved hour or at least gave it uh, a stay of execution. Uh, by siding with the four liberal justices on that point. And another thing that you you didn't mention uh, is that you and our colleague Paul Larkin recently wrote uh, a law review article that was cited by uh, Justice Gorsuch in his uh, concurrence. So congratulations <laughs> Thank uh, you. on that. It was very exciting to, to see my name uh, in <laughs> Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion. Absolutely. So Mitchell versus Wisconsin uh, is a, a criminal case and it was, oh, again, a closely divided uh, court. So the case involved whether the police need to obtain a warrant before drawing blood from a suspected drunk driver who has passed out. Uh, a majority of the court, bare majority, held that in most instances, they don't need to obtain a warrant. So a Wisconsin police officer received a call that Gerald Mitchell was highly intoxicated when he drove off uh, in his van. The officer soon found Mitchell, who was wandering around a lake near his van. He could hardly stand up and was slurring his speech very badly. The officer administered a preliminary breath test, which indicated that his blood alcohol level was three times the legal limit. The officer arrested Mitchell and transported him to the station where a more reliable test could be performed. 
On the way to the station, though, Mitchell's condition deteriorated to the point where he was too lethargic to take a breath test. The officer decided to transport Mitchell to the hospital, but en route, Mitchell passed out. Now, like many other states, Wisconsin has a law saying that if you are arrested for drunk driving, you are deemed to have given your implied consent to a blood test. Since Mitchell was in no condition to give his express consent or to withdraw his implied consent, a blood test was administered, which verified that Mitchell was drunk. After being convicted of drunk driving, Mitchell appealed, contending that the warrantless blood draw, which is considered a search of his person, violated his Fourth Amendment rights. So Justice Alito wrote the plurality opinion, which was joined by the Chief Justice and Justices Breyer and Kavanaugh, setting forth the ground rules for searches of unconscious motorists. Rather than addressing the constitutionality of the Wisconsin statute, Alito discussed how the exigent circumstances exception to the Fourth Amendment might apply to this situation. He discussed at length three prior Supreme Court cases. So in 1966, in Schmerber versus California, the court upheld a warrantless blood test of a suspected drunk driver who was involved in a car accident, relying on the exigent circumstances exception and noting that at an accident scene, officers typically have a lot to do and they don't have time to go to get a warrant before the evidence, in this case, an accurate measure of one's blood alcohol content is going to dissipate. In 2013, in Missouri versus McNeely, the court held that the exigent circumstances might not apply to someone who was stopped on suspicion of drunk driving because there would be time for an officer on the scene to get a warrant for a blood test. And in 2016, in Birchfield versus North Dakota, the court held that when someone is arrested for drunk driving, the arresting officer can perform a breathalyzer test, which is not terribly intrusive, but under normal circumstances has to get a warrant for a more intrusive blood test. Here, the plurality held that an officer confronting an unconscious motorist is pretty close to an officer coming upon an accident scene and that the officer will have other, more pressing things to deal with rather than taking the time to get a warrant. However, Alito wrote, because there may be a small set of circumstances in which an officer confronts a suspected drunk driver who has passed out and there are not other things that the officer really needs to do and he has time to get a warrant, Rather than making an absolute, you know, line in the sand rule, the case was remanded to the lower courts to see whether that narrow sliver of circumstances might apply in this case. Justice Thomas provided the deciding vote, but he wrote a separate opinion saying that in his opinion, Missouri versus McNeely was wrongly decided <laughs> and that blood alcohol evidence always dissipates quickly and that whenever you're confronted with a suspected drunk driver, exigent circumstances ought to always apply so that you never need to get a warrant to draw a blood test. Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissenting opinion that was joined by Justices Ginsburg and Kagan saying that the officer should have gotten the warrant. And Justice Gorsuch wrote a separate dissent saying that because the court did not address the constitutionality of the Wisconsin statute and because the parties had not adequately been presented with the opportunity to discuss exigent circumstances, the court should have dismissed the case as having been improvidently granted. Classic Justice Thomas. He wants to overturn every case uh, that was decided previously. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to a case out of Tennessee, Tennessee Wine. This was a 7-2 opinion by Justice Alito. The court held that Tennessee's two-year durational residency requirement for retail liquor, sale, uh, liquor store license applicants violates the Commerce Clause and is not saved by the 21st Amendment. Alito wrote that the Commerce Clause, by its own force, restricts state protectionism and that the residency requirement plainly favors Tennesseans over non-residents. 
Looking at the requirement in light of the 21st Amendment, Alito explained that protectionism is not a legitimate interest shielding state alcohol laws that burden interstate commerce. Justice Gorsuch dissented, joined by Thomas, arguing that based on the text, state history, and early precedent, states gained broad discretion under the 21st Amendment to calibrate alcohol regulations to local preference. Uh, The compromise hammered out by the 21st Amendment, he wrote, was that the regulation of alcohol wasn't left to the imagination of a committee of nine sitting in Washington, D.C., but to the judgment of the people themselves and their local elected representatives. All right. So, John, bring it home with the final opinion, uh, U.S. versus Haymond. (laughs) Yeah, this was also a a close case. This was a a criminal case in which Justice Gorsuch wrote the plurality opinion uh, that was joined by uh, uh, Justices Kagan, Sotomayor and Ginsburg, proving uh, yet more or providing yet more evidence that Justice Gorsuch has assumed the role that Justice Scalia once had. Uh, of, to quote Justice Scalia, being the darling of the criminal defense bar. Uh, (laughs) As Justice Scalia once said, I have defended criminal defendants' rights because they're there in the original Constitution to a greater degree than most judges judges have. And Justice Gorsuch clearly fits into this mold. So this case involved a guy named Andre Hammond who had been convicted of possessing child pornography and was sentenced to 38 months in prison, followed by a period of supervised release. While on supervised release, he was rearrested for possessing child pornography. Following a a supervised release revocation hearing, the judge found by a preponderance of the evidence that he was guilty of possessing these images. Now, under normal circumstances, the judge could have sentenced Heyman to an additional two years in prison. But instead, the judge applied a federal statute that carried a five-year mandatory minimum sentence for possession of child pornography. Heyman appealed, arguing that applying this statute violated his Fifth Amendment right to due process and his Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. The plurality agreed with him. Gorsuch relied very heavily on two Supreme Court cases, the court's opinion in 2000 in Apprendi versus New Jersey and its opinion in 2013 in Aline versus United States. These cases stand for the proposition that it is unconstitutional for a judge to increase a defendant's sentence beyond the statutory maximum or to expose a defendant to a mandatory minimum penalty based solely on a judge's factual findings utilizing a preponderance of the evidence standard rather than based on a jury's factual findings utilizing a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Here, Gorsuch said that since this statute established a mandatory minimum sentence that was beyond the time that normally would have been applied in any other context, it could only be imposed following a factual determination by a jury using the higher standard. Justice Breyer provided the deciding vote, writing a separate concurrence stating that in his belief, the statute is unconstitutional because the principal features of that statute made it look less like an ordinary revocation proceeding and more like punishment for a new offense. Justice Alito wrote a scathing dissent that was joined (laughs) by the Chief Justice and Justices Thomas and Kavanaugh in which he stated that the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial only applies in a criminal prosecution, not during a supervised release revocation hearing, and that attaching a right to a jury trial to such a proceeding could have consequences that he characterized as far-reaching and unfortunate. Yeah, he also said that uh, Justice Breyer's uh, narrow concurrence has, quote, saved our jurisprudence from the consequences of the plurality opinion, 
uh, which he says uh, is irreconcilable with precedent and sports rhetoric with potentially revolutionary implications. Yeah. So strong words from Justice Alito. Strong words indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that wraps up all of the opinions. So let's move on to the court's final orders of the week. The court added more than a dozen cases to its 2019-2020 term, including cases involving DACA, New Jersey's Bridgegate, and a school choice case out of Montana. So, John, what is going on with DACA? (laughs) So that is uh, the court has decided to uh, visit the issue about whether the president has the authority to revoke uh, President Obama's DACA program, which was deferred action for childhood uh, arrivals. Uh, The President Obama justified the DACA program as essentially being one in compliance with existing immigration laws and two, a matter of prosecutorial discretion. Uh, When President Trump won office, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions said that he did not believe that the DACA program uh, complied with uh, existing immigration laws and that as a a new matter of prosecutorial discretion, the program was going to be revoked. A number of lower courts said no, that President Obama actually uh, could have implemented the DACA program, that it was not uh, contrary to existing immigration laws, and that if this policy was going to be rescinded, uh, that it had to be done in compliance with the Administrative Procedures Act. It couldn't be arbitrary and capricious, and there had to be notice and comment, et cetera. There have been a lot of lower court rulings uh, on this, and now the Supreme Court has decided to take up the issue. The court is also going to hear Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, and the issue is whether it violates the Constitution's religion clauses or equal protection clause to invalidate a generally available and religiously neutral student aid program simply because the program affords students the choice of attending religious schools. So Montana's Constitution has a no-aid provision. Uh, Many states have these, also known as Blaine Amendments, that prohibit public funds from going to churches. Uh, This case is a follow-on to the 2017 decision of the Supreme Court in the Trinity Lutheran case out of Missouri, which involved a state discriminating against a church-run daycare in the distribution of uh, state grant funds for playground resurfacing. The court held in Trinity Lutheran that the state could not single out a church for disfavored treatment based solely on its religious identity. This was a narrow ruling, so now we'll see if the justices are willing to apply this principle in the area of school choice. And then finally— Bridgegate. What's Brid- going on there? Bridgegate. All right. So in uh, uh, so the Supreme Court is going to uh, review the case involving Bridget Ann Kelly. Bridget Ann Kelly was a former aide to New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Uh, and in 2013, uh, Bridget Kelly and her co-defendant, a guy named Bill Baroni, who was the former deputy executive director of the Port Authority for New York and New Jersey, uh, decided to close down various lanes of access to the toll plaza uh, on the New Jersey side of the George Washington Bridge, which caused massive, massive backup. As somebody who who went through that toll plaza in junior high, high and high school for six years, I can tell you <laughs> that this would be a big, big problem. The reason that Bridget Ann Kelly said this was being uh, done at the time was in order to conduct a traffic study. Uh, it turns out that uh, Bridget Ann Kelly was very upset with the fact that the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey, had declined to endorse Chris Christie in his reelection effort. So she sent an email to Bill Baroni that said, quote, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. Uh, <laughs> she was and Baroni were subsequently prosecuted for fraud, theft of honest uh, services fraud, uh, for having deprived the citizens of New Jersey of the honest services of a government official through fraudulent means. Uh, Her lawyers had argued, look, uh, honest services fraud or any kind of fraud for that matter 
involves you know a personal gain of some kind uh, by the people who are convicted of this. Uh, in this case, this was just routine political shenanigans, and Bridget Ann Kelly got nothing for this. In fact, she got fired uh, for all of this, and that this was not a proper prosecution. And by God, the Supreme Court is going to hear that case, and we'll hear what they have to say. <laughs> yeah, it shows how slowly the courts sometimes move that Bridgegate, which I think uh, the American people have long forgotten, is now coming to the Supreme Court. That's right. Uh, so one other case I wanted to note from the orders list, this was a, a case the court is not going to hear. Uh, they denied a case challenging Alabama's law uh, banning abortion procedures that involve dismembering the unborn baby. Uh, the state lost below, and Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence in the denial. And I just wanted to read a little bit of what he wrote. He said, this case serves as a stark reminder that our abortion jurisprudence has spiraled out of control. Although this case does not present the opportunity to address our demonstrably erroneous undue burden standard, we cannot continue blinking the reality of what this court has wrought. So another uh, powerful, uh, powerful opinion by Justice Thomas in the area of abortion. uh, And we'll see if, if the court takes up any cases in that area next term. All right. So now we're moving on to the final supreme trivia of the term. It's a end of term edition. John, are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. All right. First question. What is the running of the interns? Oh, my gosh. You, you know what this is. <laughs> well, I know that after the term, Justice Thomas takes a lot of the interns uh, up to Gettysburg. Uh, I'm going to guess it's that unless they decide that they're all going to run around the title basin or something like that. It's not the Supreme Court's interns. It's the the press interns. Uh, so this is the mad dash by interns uh, to get copies of the big opinions on the final days of the court. Uh, since the court does not allow laptops, phones or any other technological devices inside. This is the fastest way for news outlets to get the decisions to their anchors outside uh, to report on them. Special uh, diet plan for interns. Yeah, I remember <laughs> when SCOTUS blog was was still relatively new and the court didn't upload its decisions right away. I mean, it would sometimes be hours, maybe even a day. Uh, and and we would send an intern over to the to the building to pick up hard copies of orders and opinions. Um, I think it was a character building uh, assignment. <laughs> yes, we had our own running of the interns. <laughs> <laughs> All right, second question. This justice announced his or her retirement at the end of a term, but then stayed on for another six months. I believe that would be Sandra Day O'Connor, who waited until uh, until her successor was confirmed. That is correct. She announced on July 1st, 2005, that she would be retiring, but she ended up staying on until January 31st, 2006, Following the death of Chief Justice Rehnquist, filling his seat became a higher priority, and she clearly didn't want to leave her fellow justices shorthanded for an extended period of time. All right, third question. Which member of the court, current member, once remarked that the court's adjournment ensures the Constitution is safe for the summer? I'm going with Clarence Thomas. That does sound like something Thomas would say, but in fact, a young John Roberts wrote this uh, when he was working in the White House Counsel's Office during the Reagan administration. Um, He also mockingly wrote of the court's uh, workload, which was up to 150 cases per term at that time. While some of the tales of woe emanating from the court are enough to bring tears to the eyes, it is true that only Supreme Court justices and school children are expected to and do take the entire summer off. Well, given some of the opinions he's written lately, I'm certainly feeling safer. So <laughs> I'll go with that. <laughs> All right. Fourth and final question. The court does not typically announce in advance when the term will end. 
One way reporters used to try to predict the last day of the court's term was by tracking down this justice's reservation on a ferry to Nantucket. I I know this one. I, for some reason, Brennan is sticking in my mind. That's uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So Justice William Brennan spent summers on the island, and uh, he was uh, quite the local fixture there. He would sometimes pop up in, in the local courthouse, just sitting in the back of the court, uh, observing the proceedings. And he was also apparently a member of the Wharf Rats Club, which uh, still is around today and regularly meets to discuss current events from wharf-wide to worldwide. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, two out of four. I think I did it right. <laughs> and uh, listeners, this is the final episode of the season, so we'll be back in the fall with more episodes. But until then, to borrow a phrase from Judge Willett, uh, stay caffeinated and opinionated. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can also email us at scotus101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.